Well, I hope you're ready for a particularly debaucherous installment of Sabbath Bloody Podcast. This album marks a big shift for the band's sound. They really start experimenting on this one, you know, both creatively and chemically. <laughs> There's good reason for this album sounding different than Master of Reality. The drums are looser, guitar and bass are more droney. Ozzy's pitch really goes up too, actually. He's certainly more nasally, if you catch my drift. <laughs> There's a lot of debate whether this was the decline for the original lineup, the beginning of the end, or some people like myself think that they're just hitting their stride here, pushing the boundaries a little. They may push it a little too far on some of these tracks, though, as we'll see, but that's why I love it. Sabbath is never your safe band, you know? They're constantly trying new things, switching shit up to challenge both themselves and fans. Every album, bar the first few, which were recorded in like the same month, basically. Can't really knock them for not changing up the sound there. Once they give themselves some time, each album has its own flavor, its own feel, and it's fucking awesome. They never really get back to the charts like they did on Paranoid. There's no real hits on Volume 4 or Master of Reality or Sabotage and the rest of the albums. But they also never seemed like they were chasing that, you know? It was the fat cat managers and labels that hitched their wagons to them. And in turn, they did get the exposure that they needed to become huge, but there was never a cello tag applied to the boys. Even though they do do two of their most non-metal tracks in their catalog here on this album, the whole album is still regarded as like a stone-cold classic rock album. There wasn't such a thing as being not metal enough back in the 70s, because they were really the only ones doing anything heavy like this. I mean, maybe once Priest and Maiden hit and Zeppelin got big, then all the metal purists rose up. and But at this point, I mean, most people were still kind of scared of how heavy Sabbath was. Not scared of them lightening up like the idiot metal fans in the 90s. Sabbath are definitely writing songs on their own terms. And those terms just happened to be high as fuck on nose candy in 1972. <laughs> but they show a lot of natural confidence on this album, too. They're not afraid to show the other, lighter sides of their music. I mean, they touched on that on Master and even on Paranoid. You know, songs like Solitude, Planet Caravan, but here it's like full-on emotional tracks, like Laguna Sunrise, and of course Changes, there's nothing metal about that track, but it works, fits into the album. They take you there, like, I know there are a lot of albums like Dark Side of the Moon or Strange Days by the Doors that are considered essential drug albums, like you take it in and they give you that acidy, I guess, acidic feeling, <laughs> you know what I mean. Whereas Sabbath's last three albums kind of lyrically guide you through the doomy war shit, <laughs> this album gets more introverted and heady. And the bass and guitar tone here, it just mellows me out for some reason. This entire album has that effect. I'm not even a proper stoner, but this album is like a fucking drug, man. I'm telling you, like, don't do volume four, kids. <laughs> It'll fuck you up. And I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of drug talk today. I know it's become a cliche when talking about Volume 4, but they're not subtle about it at all, that's for sure. 
I think they even thank cocaine in the liner notes for fuck's sake. But regardless of all that bullshit, this album is definitely top three Sabbath for me. Maybe even top 10 of all music, if I think about it. It would definitely be my Sabbath Desert Island album. I mean, mainly because of the variety of styles on it. I always find something new. I've been hinting at it. The boys are very drugged up and partied out when they get around to making volume four. So let's jump on to the lovely caravan, fill in the gaps as we do on the show. It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. So, 1972 now, or that's where we're heading. Still under the watchful eyes and deep pockets of manager Patrick Meehan. The boys are living it up now. All the women they want, all the drugs they can take, proper rock stars at this point. They didn't need to pay for a shag anymore. Tony even mentioned that they used to go on radio shows and give out their hotel number and the ladies would just queue up after the show for them. So proper rock star shit here, the kind of stuff that would get you blacklisted on Twitter these days. Black Sabbath was also pretty much a household name, both in the US and Europe, and in the UK if you want to separate them out. God knows they do. Master of Reality was doing really well, just behind Paranoid and Sales. So on the old timeline here, let's run through some dates. Sabbath opens for Zeppelin in September of 1971. A couple of big shows in New York State. I mean, that would have been an incredible show to witness. It should be noted that Zeppelin were pretty huge at this time. I guess Zeppelin 4 would have been out at that point. So Sabbath were not the only heavy UK outfit in the charts here. It was actually planned to be a world tour, which they hadn't really done yet. They have toured the world, but not like a proper kitted out Sabbath world tour. They also headlined some big international festivals around this time. I got some lovely stories here from a couple of those deals. They're both pretty typical rock star life. First one here is in early 72. At the end of January, they headlined the Mopanga Festival in Adelaide, Australia. Let me know if I'm getting that right. It's a big outdoor deal, too, as three of the hottest months in Australia, if you don't know, are December, January, February. It takes place in a small farming town, billed as the Australian Woodstock. Sabbath headlined over a bill of largely domestic Aussie stars like Daddy Cool, Billy Troop and the Aztecs. <laughs> I don't know any of these bands. And also a young, heavily bearded Roots Rock outfit named Fraternity. Which, of course, if you know your ACDC history, was fronted by one Bon Scott. According to an article I got to hear about the Maiponga Festival, Black Sabbath's appearance was, was observed by tens of thousands of hard rock fans. Settled firmly in their garbage-strewn pop paddock for a night of love, peace, banshee rock music, booze, Booze and more booze. <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne recalls there were about 2,000 girls in the festival, and there did not seem to be a bra between them. <laughs> we flew in, wrecked the place, and drove four rented cars into the ocean. <laughs> As you do when in Australia. Tony and Patrick and Mian get into some proper rock star shit. There's one nutso story showing how wasted they must have been. So, Iomi and Mihan, the aforementioned manager, who also seems to partake in the rock star lifestyle, after the gig, they took back a very strung out Aussie girl, trying for a threesome, I assume. Here, I don't want to incriminate things too much with my, with my recounting here. I'll go back to Tony's book here for a second. This threesome from hell story. In January 1971, we flew into Adelaide to headline the Mupanga Open Air Festival. We were lured into doing this by a promoter who said, Why don't you come in here? Stay for a week's holiday. All expenses paid. Me and Patrick Meehan ended up with this one girl in our room, and then she passed out. Meehan went, She's dead! Oh, fucking hell, I thought. I could see the headlines. Girl found dead in hotel room with two guys. And I just thought, they'll think it's us. 
Mian went, we gotta get rid of her. We gotta get rid of her. His idea was to throw her off the balcony and say that she had fallen off. We were really high up. The thought of it now is absolutely frightening, but in my panic, I went along with it. We got her to the balcony, and we were trying to pick her up, and then she came around. Bloody hell, she's alive! <laughs> she was probably high on drugs, but we could easily have just tossed her over, and that would have been the end of it, and I would have became a 22-year-old murderer. But your honor, she was already dead. I bet the girl doesn't even know what happened. She'll read this book and come out of the woodwork. There are all kinds of these 70s groupie stories. Free love, baby. <laughs> it seems the Master of Reality tour cycle took them to all kinds of famous rock scenes. They even stayed at the Edgewater in Seattle, if you know your Zeppelin history. That's the hotel on the water where you can fish from your hotel room, where John Bonham allegedly caught a shark and inserted it into a willing groupie. Well, I don't think the Sabbath lads got around to that, but Ozzy did catch a shark, and apparently he decided to gut it and paint the walls of the hotel with shark's blood. So there's some proper rock star debauchery going down, even on the Master of Reality tour. So to officially close out that tour, though, they're set to play a massive pop festival in Puerto Rico. The first one ever there. I mean epic, but I guess destined to fail. Here, I'll read out the flyer. You can see how big it could have been for them. They had a headline spot there, too. It was set for three days, April 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1972, camping out on 429 acres of one mile of Caribbean beach. Festival package, 149 US dollars. Wow, and that includes round trip airfare, ground transportation, camping, and admission. Like, Jesus Christ, that's a steal compared to Ja Rule's piece of shit festival. And here's the lineup. With Sabbath set to, to headline, of course, you got Alice Cooper, he would have been big back then, too. I think School's Out was around 72. Killers would have been out, at least. You got Allman Brothers. Amazing. B.B. King. ELP. Faces. Fleetwood Mac. Poco. Uh, Jay Giles Band. There you go. My angel is a centerfold. Na, 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 na. <laughs> Fucking A. Well, that wouldn't have been out yet. That was the 80s, right? Due to all the helicopters being used and the traffic being locked down to the gig, Sabbath were stuck in their hotel room when they were set to play, with no way of getting over to the festival stage. I would have been pissed, unless Cooper plays a double set to make up for it. The boys were probably okay with it, though. They got to stay in their hotel drinking rum. Fuck it. It's a lovely gig for them, right? So that closes it out pretty much there. And installment gets us right up to where we want to be today, June 1st, 1972, when they officially begin work on their new LP, when things start to get heavy. All right, let's take a breath here. Obviously by breath, I mean a swig of beer. Shit's gonna get weird here. I can feel it. Yes, weirder than the dead groupie story. We are segueing into some real debauchery and heartbreak now. Brace yourself, friends. So, tentatively titled Snowblind, but ultimately Volume 4. They start working on the material for this album back in England first. They wanted to chill out. Take their time with this one. Recover a little bit from The Killing Road, too. No more albums recorded on the run between tours. It had been a full year now since they had recorded Master of Reality, a lifetime in 70s rock world. But back over on the other side of the pond, the lads' personal lives get a little messy. I think it's important to talk a little bit about what was going on at home and what probably drives them to get back to L.A. so fast and pretty much derail themselves. It's that classic personal life versus the pull of the road that all the proper rock stars go through. Sabbath, of course, is no exception. It should be noted that both Ozzy and Bill had wives at this point, too. And I don't think either of them were very faithful to their respective wives during the master tour. 
the late night visits, doing lines off some willing supernaut ladies. And Bill especially had some marital problems when he returned to England because his wife ends up filing for divorce, inspiring Geezer to write some lyrics about it. Bill also picks up some road souvenirs. He's diagnosed with hepatitis B, but that combined with the road wear that every drummer gets and the failed marriage, that puts old Nibby into a pretty fragile state around the time of volume four. And Ozzy isn't doing much better from what I gathered or cared to gather. I don't want to dive into these lads' personal lives too much on the show, but Ozzy was coming home to the UK to his very pregnant missus, who I assume he must have knocked up between the paranoid master cycles because they have their first child, Jessica Starshine. <laughs> I think Ozzy must have picked her middle name there. All right, back to the show here, though. I'll read a little bit more so you know the physical shape the lads were in at the end of the master of reality cycle. This is Tony again here. I think it was at the end of the third tour of America that we played the Hollywood Bowl for the first time. My memory is not crystal clear about the show because I collapsed at the end of it. I passed out because of exhaustion. I just remember going to the last song and then gone. The doctor who examined me said, you've got to get on the next plane back to England. Go straight home and take it easy. I was about to have a nervous breakdown, so they prescribed Valium in high doses. I was a fucking zombie all day. I really had to just rest. It had been too much with the lifestyle we were living. All the touring and not getting a lot of sleep. And the drugs, I suppose. Bill was diagnosed with hepatitis and ended up in the hospital. He carried this rusty knife with him all the time, and he opened some clams with it and cut his hand. He claims he had either gotten it from his knife or from the shell. <laughs> I think he got it from a groupie. Being a vegan, Geezer couldn't get half the food he wanted, so a combination of that with the drugs made him awfully thin by the end of the tour. He got these kidney stones and ended up in the hospital as well. We were all falling to bits. <laughs> so... Okay, so let's get back to the making of Volume 4 here. First, the LP's cover. Really cool 70s font and color scheme. Reminds me of a Clockwork Orange. You got a Banksy-looking kind of stencil of Ozzy throwing up the peace signs. And the tassels hanging down from his arms. Very groovy cover, man. There is also a great gatefold live shot, which I found out was is a shot from an old venue in Birmingham that they used to play a lot over the years. So that's kind of a cool piece of Sabbath history. Produced by Patrick Meehan and Black Sabbath. <laughs> Although Meehan was just fronted the money and the coke, and the boys basically produced this one themselves. So our old friend Roger Bain is left back in England. There's a thank you in here in the liner notes, like I said, about cocaine. Let me find it. Here it is. We wish to thank the great Coca-Cola company, Coke-Cola company of Los Angeles. Cheeky buggers. <laughs> they should have thanked South America or Escobar. Apparently the group spent... 75,000 on cocaine in 1972 alone. <laughs> At least they were keeping books, right? And the recording itself only costs like 60 grand to make. So they were already 10 grand in the hole before the mix even happened. Doesn't sound like much, but in 72, that's a fuck ton of money. So volume four was recorded at the record plant, which was the LA branch of the famous New York bass suite. The one that Hendrix famously did in Electric Ladyland. So Good vibes carried over here. But let's talk about their home away from home, the Stradella Mansion. This is where the party was at, man. They were put up in a proper house, a, a posh estate owned by the DuPont family, who ironically have a connection to some chemical weapons, a proper war pig. So you got swimming pools, babes in bikinis, flight cases of cocaine flown in. And the cocaine would be delivered in these sealed flight cases, some of the strongest, purest cocaine that was available in America. One story that pops up quite a bit is the painting of Bill Ward. Yeah, so apparently Ozzy had found a can of gold spray paint in the mansion. And uh, as Ward recalls, he said, 
there's one point where Ozzy had spray painted my private parts. And then I read on the spray paint that it was poisonous and do not apply to the skin. So in fear of my private parts, I panicked and went kind of crazy. <laughs> so there must have been a big throwdown in the mansion with gold member Bill there. Are the riff compels me? Won't you listen? Okay, volume four, people. Definitely the most experimental and eclectic sounding record that they put out in the 70s. It has a vibe all to its own. Well, some might argue that Tech X is more out there sonically, but that whole album is firmly in the prog arena, and the keys really take over on everything. This one's still a fucking guitar-driven album, but with some super interesting riffs and production choices. Volume 4 has this blistering guitar tone. They really get it solid, that DIY sound. And rightfully so, as this is the first album that they more or less self-produced. In that same way, it's kind of abrasive at times, and actually inconsistent mix-wise, I find. Especially when you get into the deep parts of the B-side. But that's really part of Volume 4's charm, really. I wouldn't change it for the world. It goes all over the place. It keeps you on board, you know? It's hard to explain. Well, it's easy to explain. It's a fucking Coke album. <laughs> Listen to this trip that opens up the offering. <laughs> got this huge opening pairing big sprawling almost deadhead kind of jam band numbers and wheels of confusion and tomorrow's dream i hear some serious skinnered in there maybe that's just me i'm always looking to find the southern charm in each riff both tracks are fantastic in their own right they pair together so well they're bridged by the straightener it's a total coke rock riff that ends wheels of confusion let me just push to that, actually. This is fucking cool stuff, though. You really gotta listen to this album. It's all about how the band kind of drones in with Tony's riff and really sucks you in. But the tone is set with these two numbers. No complaints on either. Here's, here's track two, Tomorrow's Dream. Tomorrow's Dream is a little bit more straightforward than Wheels And that makes sense because this is the one that they actually had in mind as a radio single But they're just such big tracks that they immediately transport you to 1972 Because it draws you in, you kind of get this big epic jam space vibe That you think that they're going to keep you in But then track three what the fuck man you get a straight up piano ballad changes you all know it now i'm not the biggest fan of this song not because i'm a doom only metal guy or any shit like that I can't handle a good sappy love ballad i love a good love ballad <laughs> but the song is just kind of lame it experienced a little bit of resurgence in airplay too when charles bradley did that soul cover of it still the actual song it's just not for me I do appreciate that they could pull it off, but they'd lose me a little. I won't lie. I mean, the song doesn't feel insincere or anything. It's just fucking lame, that's all. It's funny to me, though, that it was inspired by Bill's divorce, so they say. And he doesn't even play on the fucking song. So if you think about it, I picture them kind of performing this for Bill. <laughs> we know what you're going through, Nibby. Ozzy singing, Tony on piano, Geezer on the Mellotron. The segue doesn't help either. Out of changes... They go to a real kind of sound art bit that they did. 
really lulls you down into it. Effects. And look at this. I actually have a cover here from Ben, a resident riff lord, covered this track. Obviously, he has a sense of humor about his Iomi worship to do this, but here's the best cover of effects out there. Maybe the only cover. <laughs> when you know the story behind these sounds here, it does make for a laugh every time the song pops on. Just picture the lads now, laced out of nose candy. The real good king of the universe shit here too. But naked, naturally. With a big gold cross on, taking runs at Tony's SG on the floor. That's the story I've gathered anyway. And it actually makes the track better. Here's all that needs to be said about effects. This is Tony saying this. We were mostly naked at the time we were recording volume four. On effects, we started playing around and we were dancing about half naked, just being stupid. And I hit my guitar with my cross and I went, boing. <laughs> okay, that's all I need to read, right? So that was that. Boing, put it on the fucking album. It's all gold. Where's my fucking Coke, man? <laughs> but look, this is weird, right? I had those first two amazing tracks, then Changes was dog shit, and then this comes on. I mean, just when you, the boings of effects have got you scratching your head and drifting away, thinking, what the fuck am I listening to here? Bang. Supernaut comes in, destroys you. One of the biggest riffs of all. Supernaut is insanely great. It obliterates you if you hang on through that effects bullshit, which you had to back in the vinyl days. So this one has got to be the riff of the album, right? It even goes into some trippy world beat stuff too on the bridge, which works. Maybe really shines on this track. It's a shame I can't play the full album version for you. And then when you slip over to side two, you get Snowblind. lovely little number about nose candy the riffs in this one are very recognizable in the sabbath realm actually our new theme song for sabbath bloody podcast graciously provided by bryant of the band gygax i don't know how to pronounce it it's dungeons and dragons thing g y g a x anyway the riff that he plays is straight up volume four inspired very snowblind-esque and and snowblind has a rad tone it really gets epic at the end with these symphonic strings being mixed into the action but from Snowblind they go into the doom ridden riff collage that is Cornucopia I love the discordant feel of this jam it almost feels like a demo Bill's really all over the place throughout and even the first couple of listens, he almost sounds too sloppy Joe for me. But I've grown to really love this song. He himself has been quoted as saying that he couldn't get it in the studio on Cornucopia. He butted head so much with Tony over it that he thought he was going to leave the band or be fired. But really, it has a cool, loose feeling that works and really showcases Bill's natural talent, I think. Cornucopia, I used to view it as a stumble on Volume 4, but it's a fucking great track, too. One of my favorites on repeat listens. Then... It's into Tony's best instrumental piece, in my opinion. This really mellows out the B-side.
I said, it's probably my favorite of Tony's instrumental interludes. Definitely from the 70s. It has this great sort of film score feel to it. All right. So moving through here, on to the next one, St. Vitus's Dance. <laughs> That title inspired one of the greatest doom metal bands of all time in the 1990s. The really buzzy guitar on St. Vitus 2, it can be a little grating that late in the album if you're doing a full burn. I can't believe this. I'm fucking slagging on volume four. What the fuck, man? <laughs> it is seriously the album that I listen to the most as of late. Really, with volume four, all these little imperfections that I'm pointing out are what really make it work. To close the album, they fucking drive it home with the best of the day on the last track. Under the sun, every day comes and goes. This is just top-tier fucking Black Sabbath. Just incredible. I fucking love this song. I know I gave the top riff honors already to Supernaut, but this is up there too for Doomcat like myself. Under the Sun is where it's at. I can't say enough good things about this song. It's, it's got the doom, it's got the speed up on the everyday comes and goes part, and it's even got a glorious part where they kind of wind it down. Ooh, just fucking goosebumps thinking about that part. I pulled a great quote here from a music historian, Mick Wall, who's written some great books. I've got one that he did for Lemmy, which is awesome, but... Apparently he has one on Sabbath too, which I haven't tracked down, but I came across this note, which is a quote from it. I believe it's pulled from his book, Symptom of the Universe. Either way, he speaks really highly of that closing track, Under the Sun. Let me just read it out this excerpt here, because it kind of speaks volumes for Volume (laughs) 4. The true voice of Black Sabbath Volume 4 was captured on the finale track, Under the Sun, a perfectly executed bookend to Wheels of Confusion. It's another journey track, long and convoluted, and as hard to hold on to as the tail of a gray white shark. Moving through three discernible musical sections, it was tracks like Under the Sun that would become the sonic signpost for those bands that would follow Sabbath in years to come. Groups like Iron Maiden and Metallica, whose entire careers could be traced virtually to the last two and a half minutes of Under the Sun. Self-important, pained, almost repellent in their insistent magnetism. Over-involved and desperately serious. Epic right down to the last inglorious nail-hammering chord. <laughs> yeah, he gets a little authory there at the end, but... Yeah, this cut is that epic. Probably my favorite album closer from Sabbath, anyway. Here's part of another article that I found on the anniversary of Volume 4 several years ago. Uh, Bill's talking a bit about the fear creeping in here. Volume 4. That is the album where I nearly got kicked out of the band, says Bill. It was one thing for Bill to be zonked out all the time on cider, dope, and cocaine quite another for him to raise any objections to the more sophisticated music, as Tony saw it, that presented itself on Volume 4. When he suggested that they forget the mellotrons and the steering quartets and do some blues jams, Tony turned his back on him. After that, Bill recalls, I hated the song Cornucopia. There were patterns in there that were just horrible. There was a kind of a cold eeriness in the studio, and I realized that I was under the gun. I felt like I had blown it and I was about to get fired. So yeah, shit's getting a little shattered in the Sabbath camp. The boys aren't as tight-knit as they used to be. And this just continues to escalate through the next few albums. So hang in there with me, guys, because it's all falling apart. But it's good while it's falling apart. Don't worry. There's some fucking great albums coming up. 
Tony is also showing signs of wanting full control here, which is definitely a huge factor in the whole Aussie lineup dissolving in the late 70s. Spoiler alert. They never really get back to that tightness and focus that Master had. I mean, they have moments. Like, I personally think the next album is stronger and more of a classic Sabbath record than this one even. Volume 4 is kind of an anomaly. A fucking great anomaly, but it's more of a moment in time. It has a feel that calls you back for sure, but I still take Master and Bloody over this in a pinch. So, Volume 4 is just fucking interesting to listen to, though. Especially when you're thinking of the state that they were in. So I do spin it quite often, actually. Final mixes for Volume 4 took place in London, but only Tony was there to oversee them. Again, he took the helm while the others dealt with their addictions and their relationships. Ozzy had gone back to Thelma and the family in the country. I think around that time he goes a little insane on the farm. Uh, there's a story where Thelma buys him some chickens to look after while he's winding down, but Ozzy gets smashed and massacres a lot of them. So you can look that up. It's crazy shit. Geezer had retreated to a new pad in the countryside as well, and Bill, as he put it, was leading the Sid and Nancy lifestyle with his new L.A. groupie side piece, living in hotels, loaded all the time back in America for a bit. So, boom! That's volume four, people. Phenomenal. Underrated, but not really underrated. It's kind of a cult classic at this point. So, But I'd even put it ahead of Paranoid in my books. I know, crazy, right? But I just dig the garage feel of it and the variety that they pump out. So that's that, people. Another classic Sabbath album down. <laughs> Let me know what you think of the show. We're four months in now, and I think it's evolving nicely. I've got a structure here moving forward, at least. Let me know if you'd like to hear more or less of certain things. Well, fuck. If you want to hear less of anything, just fast forward or turn it off. <laughs> As always, hit me up on Twitter, at SabbathBloodyPC. That's about all I can handle as far as the socials go. Anyway, stay frosty out there, friends. Cocaine. Bog blast all of you.